Everybody doing okay? Yeah? I don't know about you, but um, I had a great week, kind of at the best we could, getting away from technology, Um, kind of taking a fast from it. I don't know how many of you were able to do it, but um, it was funny talking with certain people. Um, I was talking with this one person. They said, yeah, I'm going to get away from some things. I'm going to get rid of the games on Facebook, but I don't know if I can get rid of Facebook. (laughs) you know, it's, but it's that thing where I hope what happened, again, is not just, not just to try to get rid of something. The whole point was is to stop the, just the noise in our world just long enough that we might actually hear God in the midst of all of it. That's what we were talking about, this whole idea that, our, that w- this world is so noisy and it's clamoring and it's desiring that we get caught up in all these different things that are uh, futile. We talked about that last week. It's just pointless. And so I know for, for on a personal level, um, boy, God did some work in my life this week. Uh, I think I got exposed in some key areas in regards to my marriage that I, uh, I need the gospel desperately um, in regards to my marriage. Um, you can buy into this weird lie that you're a great husband until you have to be honest with yourself and realize that, man, I need the gospel to overcome my shortcomings as a man. Um, you can see it in your parenting. Um, uh, you, when you get so busy, you, you kind of, you notice that there's things wrong, but you don't have time to evaluate it. And I know this week I just appreciated God so much giving me the time to, to bring the gospel to bear on some key areas in my life, like my marriage and my family. And, and, um, and so I hope you had the, had the same thing. But the other thing that hit me this morning, I'd shut off technology kind of all week. And the first thing I pop open is what's happening over in Egypt right now. And it was like, whoa, welcome back to the, <laughs> to the real world, you know. But it was so good. The moment that I popped that open this morning and I looked at it, the first thought that came to my mind is, God, help those Christians over there. What an opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ to enter into the melee of that world that's Egypt right now and to be a gospel testimony like no other. I mean, in all of my time this morning thinking through them was, God, help our brothers and sisters there to be this light in the midst of darkness. Help them to show the difference between what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to follow Muhammad. Help them just be this group of people that in the end of it wouldn't be great if everyone is worried about like all the Muslim influence. And actually what happens is that Egypt gets impacted for the gospel. And wouldn't it be great, now think about this, wouldn't it be great if instead of us going, oh no, what are we going to do? We just actually started to be this church that just cried out to God and said, God, do the impossible. Do what you do so well over there, God, and bring Jesus into the midst of that melee. Bring Jesus in in a way that's just shocking. In fact, right now in the Muslim world, the greatest influence sometimes of how people are coming to know Jesus is through, is, is through dreams. They're, they're having these dreams about Jesus, and in the midst of it, they're asking questions about Jesus, and in asking questions about Jesus, people are coming to know him. What if Jesus used this to change the Egyptian world? And can you imagine if a Christian nation lands in the middle of the Muslim world? See, we don't have to worry, do we? We can just come to God and we can pray. And my whole goal last week in in giving us a fast away from that technology is to gain perspective. I mean, to truly see the King of kings and Lord of lords on his throne, to see that he can do anything. 
And so that's what we talked about last week. We talked about this idea, and we've been working through this idea of what it means to live worthily, what it means to take all these amazing truths that God has and to bring them into equilibrium, our life into the equilibrium of of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And not only into equilibrium, but one of the things that we've been hoping to do is to also show the difference, the contrast between walking in this worthily style and walking as the Gentiles do. And we talked about it being just futile at the end of it, at the very end of it, because their hearts are hard, because they can't obey God. The only outcome is futility, just nothingness. And we talked about just this Gentile world, just the clamoring of it to get us to not think about the most important things in life like God and all these other things. But the way that I want to go is, and and the thing I I want to to make sure that we understand this, that the, the way that Paul brings it all together and the thing he calls people to is to think about the gospel. He says, put off that old self and put on this new thing. And he said, in the midst of it, that gospel, in truly living out who we are as this group of people that have died to ourselves and now live to Christ, we can actually have our minds renewed so that while the rest of the world is heading into futility, we are different. In fact, the way that, that Paul talks about it in another passage, he says, is that our, our minds, this inner man of who we are, is being renewed every single day. That while the world is going one direction, we're different. And we have to appropriate that. We have to actually live it. And he talks about this at the very end in verse 24 is, is that when we begin to be these people that live the gospel, that, that here's these amazing truths of the gospel, and as we begin to appropriate it and, and the spirit of our minds are transformed, he said, we will start to be these people that actually begin to look like who are supposed to be these image bearers of God, these people that reflect God accurately. But what he's going to do now is so interesting. He's going to make sure that we understand something extremely important. We can't just think about the gospel. But we actually, the idea is we have to actually live it. We have to obey it. See, the thing about obedience we sometimes think of, there's one side of it, which is just, I'm going to will this up and I'm going to muster it. And the one thing I don't want to miss, we're going to get to this later. And people have asked me, now, where's the spirit in this? The Spirit is the empowerment, and we're going to get to this a little bit later on, but the Spirit is in the middle of this. In fact, if you want to read about the Spirit this week, you can read Romans 6 through 8. Paul has a a, a great statement about this, uh, about how it is that the Spirit's involved in this. In fact, in in Romans 6, 11, let me just throw it up for you there real quick. The means by which we're empowered to do this in Romans 6, 11 is, so you also, he said, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know what? I went for there to be more. Go to me to Romans 6. Ah, oh, nuts. Romans 6. No, it's not your fault. It's, it's not. It's my fault. I didn't want the person in the back doing it to be. <clears throat> but he's talking through this. Um, in fact, he talks about it in verse 5, chapter 6. He says, look, if we've been united with him in death like his, He's going to preach these, preaching the gospels, and we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one has died, has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. You know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God now. In other words, now, I don't have to live this futile way of thinking, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then he walks through this, this whole idea about how, who you present yourselves as slaves to. And then in chapter 8, he comes to this amazing idea that the way in which we do this is the spirit that God gives us. But the thing about it is, is that the spirit dwells in his church. And that's what Paul's been talking about in Ephesians 4 is this whole idea. And when he gets to 4, 7 through 16, is where this transformation happens, where this obedience happens, where we learn to live actually the gospel is in the middle of the church. And it's interesting about this is that to walk in a manner worthily, it demands that you live in a body. See, I grew up in a church, and and I think a lot of you did, where it was just me and God, me and God. Everything was vertical. But the problem with that is that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that if we're going to live worthily in such a way that God intends us to, we actually do have to be able to live vertically, no doubt, between me and God. But the way in which God pulls this off also has a horizontal component. Now, what we tend to do is, is, as people, is we tend to put people around us that we get along with well. But let me tell you something. The greatest way to be shaped by the renewing of your mind is not to put yourself around people that you get along with well. Try living along people that you don't get along with well. You will be refined immediately. In fact, one of the reasons why we've tried so hard to push this out into neighborhoods is because of our tendency to want to put people around us that we like. And we know as elders is, is that because we all have this tendency to put like-minded people that think like us, that talk like us, that then won't allow us to truly be able to, to grow in, our, in, in Christ is, is we've tried to then push it towards proximity so that you have to hang around people that you don't like. In fact, the reason is, is it's for our own good that we do this. Now, the way he's going to move from there is, and look at verse, uh, uh, go to, back to Ephesians 4. Look at Ephesians 4. He's going, to, he's going to talk through this now. Look at Ephesians 4 and look at verse 25. Based upon what he said, and he's going to build it out of this idea so that we might now be truly created or, or made in the likeness of God, he's going to now give us these, these unique commands. He's going to lay out these commands with a gospel promise to them. He's going to talk through how is it that my mind is renewed? What things do I need to be doing and living amongst God's church so that not only I can demonstrate God well, but so that I can authentically be transformed into this this, this mind that God wants me to have? Look at verse 25. Therefore, based upon what I've just said, and the first thing that he's going to lay out for us, the way in which our mind is going to be transformed, is having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, the idea of speaking truth there, or the idea of putting away falsehood, is is we need to put away talk that its substance isn't true. The core of it isn't true. Uh, The idea being especially is, is whenever we tell falsehood, generally there's a a unique goal in mind. Either number one, self-protection, or number two, self-promotion. Have you ever noticed that? Why do we lie? Because we want to protect ourselves or we want to promote ourselves. And the very end of it, the whole core behind falsehood is me. I want to protect me. 
In fact, the way that he's going to put it in there is he's going to talk about this whole idea of speaking truth and the way that, that he's going to connect it is, is that there's this one out there, the evil one, to which we've been talking about since the very beginning, these spiritual forces that we battle against that's headed by Satan, who's the father of lies, who loves nothing more than to get people caught up in non-truth, to make it about themselves, to get insatiated with themselves. That's the way the evil one works. And that's the way Paul's now going to say is, is that's the way the Gentiles go in the futility of their mind. But you all need to be different. Don't let the evil one in his craftiness allow you to be these groups of people that are swayed into thinking like he does, into thinking about going to this futility, which now will not allow your minds to be transformed. You need to fight that as a group of people. You need to work together. You need to depend upon God to be this group of people that don't enter into falsehood. The antithesis of this is truth. And if you go back up to chapter 4, verse 21, it's... When we are truly in Jesus, we are in truth. We can't not be in the truth. Everything about this point coming up to chapter 4 has all been about truth. And the way that he talks us to this truth that we're supposed to do is it's truth. Look how he says it. I want you to speak truth with his neighbor. Now, the term neighbor, Jesus has always used together in, 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 this, in this concept, is that our neighbor tends to just be anyone that's around us. We've heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. But in this case, actually, he's not just talking about any neighbor. It comes out of Zechariah, and in Zechariah, he's speaking about a unique neighbor. He's talking about the body. See, the way that he caveats it later on is he's going to say this in verse 24. He says, for we are members of one another. He's not just talking about any old neighbor. He's saying inside of this context of the church, we cannot lie to each other. We have to speak the truth. And the key idea that he talks about there is you look down in verse 24 is that we, have to, we are members of one another. That word member isn't just that we're an organization. In fact, the only way that members is ever used is in the concept of an organism. We're not just anybody. We're not an organization. We're not the Elks Club. We're not you know, those kinds of things. We're a church. And the thing about a church is we have to understand is the reason that we can't lie to each other is because we are members. We're a living organism. Now think with me just for a second. Can you imagine if your eyes could lie to your hand? Imagine eating. And your eyes are sitting up there giggling. <laughs> right? Imagine that they could tell your hand half-truths, where you're almost there. <laughs> right? Imagine if they could exaggerate. Your fork is this big. The whole idea being is why would your eyes ever do that to you? See, the idea that he uses as organism is, is that I believe in the church of Jesus Christ today, we don't believe we're an organism. We think we're an organization. And so therefore, it's okay to lie to one another because if I lie to you, it doesn't affect me. But Jesus designed this church to not be an organization. He designed it to be an organism. And in being an organism, his whole point is, is do you understand that if you lie to one another, you're not hurting only one another, you're hurting yourself. In fact, the way that he puts it in 1 Corinthians 12 is, is that if one part of the body hurts what? All of it hurts. We can't lie to one another. The way that I think we lie to one another, it's pretty interesting. I've been thinking through this and how we tend to lie to each other. First one is I think we avoid confession of sin. I've seen this a lot in people's lives. Um, 
the very person that we should confess sin to, we avoid. Why? Self-protection and self-promotion. In fact, here's a thought for you. If there is a sin in your life right now, who do you least want to tell? Think about that for just a second. And what would happen if you told them? Now, for some of you, you'd be like, you don't understand. All hell would break loose. (laughs) Maybe it should. See, this whole thing about speaking the truth is we somehow have this idea that somehow I'm just going to internalize it. I'm just going to keep it here. I'm going to keep it and I'm just going to deal with it. And the Satan loves to get us there because when he gets us there, he knows he has us. The moment that it gets out of our mouth, the moment that we've told the person that we're afraid to tell it to, now all of a sudden Satan no longer has a means of using that against us. And now the church is able to be more healthy. A marriage is able to be more healthy. A family is able to be more healthy. That's the first one, avoiding of confession of sin. The second one is confronting sin. We don't want to have to deal with the fallout. Man, I don't know if you've ever sat there and you know you need to confront somebody about something and you've prayed about it and you've thought through it and you've dealt with the log first in your eye. And you know you don't want to tell them. Why? Because we are afraid of the fallout of what's going to happen when we tell them. But we got to, especially within marriages. And the other part about it is the reason that probably we don't want to tell them is we're not good at it. We're not good at telling the truth and there's this caveat in love. We don't know how to do it in such a way that actually the person understands our love of them. We tell half-truths. That's the other way in which we, we, we promote falsehood. It seems to have these neat immediate results where you're like, okay, we've got it somehow dealt with, but we know that problem still exists, and as it exists, it just festers and it festers. And I would say Christians of anybody, we are the best at half-truths. We know how to tell people just enough to kind of assuage our, our conscience, but in the end of it, we still haven't dealt with the problem. Exaggeration. Preachers are phenomenal at this. Boy, we love to emphasize these big, gigantic pieces that we want people to understand. And sometimes we feel like we have to exaggerate for God as if God somehow needs to be exaggerated for. We want people to respond. But the problem about exaggeration is at the bottom end of it, we find out we lose integrity. And at the core of this, and this is just the whole thing in in the gospel thing. At the very core of this, the, the problem of not speaking the truth is, is it reveals within us a lack of integrity. In other words, if you cut us at our core, out of the mouth, Jesus promised, comes these lies because of not what's wrong with our mouth, but because of what's wrong with our what? Our hearts. That's what he's getting after. So that's the first one. If we're going to be this group of people that understand who Jesus is, he is to be in Jesus is to be in truth. And therefore now this group of people must become a group of people that authentically goes about the obedience of truth so that we might accurately portray God to the world but not only accurately portray God to the world, but in the middle of that obedience is that's where the mind begins to be transformed. That's the first one. Now, here's the second one he's going to talk about. The second one is anger. Look at verse uh, 26. Be angry, he says, and then he's going to couple it, but don't sin and and don't let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil no opportunity. Now, this idea of angry that's so interesting there is, do you see the command? Be what? Okay, now that one's a difficult one. Now, this is what the Bible's not saying. 
He's not saying Christians are supposed to go around all the time being angry, okay? So don't go there. Can you imagine if everybody, all of us left just like, yeah, that's fine. I'm ticked off at the world, man. <laughs> now, but here's what he is saying. When we look at the realities of our world and the nastiness to which it exists and the injustice that's out there in the world, we should be angry. In fact, the Bible talks about God being angry. It talks about Jesus when he comes into, remember when he comes into the temple and they were using it as a place to sell goods and Jesus comes in there and he, out of a righteous anger, takes and turns over tables and drives people out with a whip. In other words, there's a place for, for anger. In fact, in the, the place for this anger, it, it's this idea of it's, it's being iterative. It's, it's this, when I look around and I see injustice in the world, it should stir me. In fact, I think all of the great movements that have fought injustice have come out of people being angry about them. Think about the, the abolitionist movement or even uh, uh, mad, mothers against drunk driving, right? A mom got mad. And, and in the midst of her being mad, she went about and she caused change. But the thing Paul wants us to understand is, though, is we have to be so careful with anger. It is the one emotion, this one guy put it, that humans can't control. And the way he's going to now put it is, is make sure, be angry, but he says, do something so important. We are not the Gentiles. We're not like them. We're not futile. We're not these people now that rush into all these things. We're completely different. He says, don't sin. In other words, there's a way to deal with that anger, but make sure at all costs, don't deal with that anger how you want to deal with it. Deal with it how God asks us to deal with it. Sin is exiting God's will and intention and doing whatever the heck I want to do. And we all know that when you're angry, how hard is it to keep your mind? Oh my goodness, if you don't believe me, go out on the 405 at 5 (laughs) o'clock. People steering wheels... You know, they're just like, ah. The moment somebody cuts you off, you everything inside of you wants to just, right, explode. Somebody down here is like, is that you, Polly? Yeah, he's confessing. He's confessing. But the whole idea is this. Don't do what the Gentiles do. We're different. And now what he's going to say is he's going to give us the, the, the means by which now that our mind is transformed. What are we supposed to do with it then? He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's the first thing he's going to do. In other words, with your anger, make sure because it's like a hot potato. I mean, imagine if I brought in, have you ever played the game hot potato before? What are you supposed to do with it? Get rid of it as fast as you can, right? In other words, you're supposed to deal with it appropriately. I try to play this with my son, except most times I end up bopping it off his head at different times. But it's this whole thing where, man, we're, we're going to play hot potato together. We're going to get rid of the ball really fast. The idea being, I want you to deal appropriately and quickly and as to the point as you can. Get it done. Deal with it quickly. In fact, inside of the church, we tend to do it this way. We go to bed oftentimes angry, don't we? And who most often are we angry at? Our spouse and our who? Our kids. And sometimes ourselves. Whoever said that's a really good one. He says, don't harbor anger overnight. Deal with it swiftly. The other thing is, is that he says, I want you to deal with it in such a way that anger doesn't fester. The way that he's going to talk about it, the way he's going to bring it up is how do we deal with it is, is that anger, and we talked about it this last week, it needs a Lord. 
See, our problem is with anger is the moment that we hit anger is we want to solve an injustice, but the problem is as we come to this. Go with me to Romans 12, 19. I, I think I put that one up there. Hopefully I did this one right. Beloved, and here's the thing. Don't deal with it how the Gentiles deal with it. Never avenge yourselves. Look at this. How do I deal with it? But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is Todd's. Vengeance, he says, is mine. It's not yours. You don't have the right to deal with injustice. I never gave you the authority to deal with injustice. I don't care if it's your husband or your wife or your kids or anybody within this body. Vengeance is whose? God's. He goes on and says, I will repay. That's my job. I can handle anger. You can't, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, do the opposite. Deal with it this way. Instead of carrying out vengeance, he says, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. In other words, if you really want to take vengeance out, love them. I just love you right now. They call me Todd. I love you, though. I mean, it's just, oh. Do not, look at this word, be overcome. The idea is to like a wave over you. Do not be overcome it, but instead be this wave that overcomes evil with what? Good. In other words, the best way to get rid of that anger is to pass it off and to be this group of people that instead carries out upon them love. Now, what do we deal with, though, when we talk about stuff like, you know, mad, mothers against drug driving, or, or like uh, the, the other issue is, is dealing with like the abolitionist movement. The beauty is, though, is that doesn't mean that we just let go and let God. What that means is we bring appropriate love into the situation. How did the Christians in, in Germany do it during World War II? They sacrificed their lives. They loved groups of people by hiding groups of people to be able to protect them. How did the people do it in the United States during the abolitionist movement or in Great Britain at different points? They began to love in these unique ways that allowed themselves to sometimes bear the brunt instead of others so that others might be rescued out of this slavery. In other words, it doesn't mean just sit back. It, what it really means is, is find unique phenomenal ways of bringing about love. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing is, is not only we to do that, but he has, he has this, this, this warning to us. This is the moment that you do this and you don't let the sun go down and you let the sun go down in your anger, you will give the a devil, he, the word here is an opportunity. See, the moment that Satan gets this, he's always been the father of lies. He knows how to get us this way. He knows how to tweak our little thing inside of us. He knows how to say, you deserve it. You deserve to get vengeance. You're in the right. Look at you. Aren't you wonderful? And the moment that you do that, here's the thing you've got to understand. Sometimes we've taught this as a place in your life. You'll give the devil a foothold in your life. That's not what Paul is talking about. It's not that it's in your life. It's that you give a place for the evil one inside of the body. In other words, you become a door to the body of Christ. In other words, you become the entry point whereby which now, through your vengeance and anger, the devil uses you to wreak havoc on this beautiful body to which Jesus died for. 
Paul says, don't go there. Be different. Be this group of people that through obedience to God in this way, you deal with your anger how God asks you to deal with your anger. And therefore now you'll be transformed in your mind. That's the, that's the second thing. Here's the third thing. The third scenario of how the Spirit transforms our mind is this. Look at verse uh, uh, 28. Not only are we to, to not be angry, but he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather, he says, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, I don't want to start with the command. Let me start back just a little bit. The way that he frames this, and this is so important, the purpose of work is not to lavish upon myself the booty or the reward of work. That's so key to this. In fact, I would say the very reason we don't have more to share with those in need has a lot to do with how we choose to spend our money. Now, what he's going to talk about here is, is we should work. In fact, look at the words that he uses down in there. One of them that he uses in verse 28 is he says, let him labor. It's, it's the Greek word that just literally, it means to just work to the point of exhaustion. God designed us to be this group of people to work. In fact, from the very beginning in Genesis 1, work has always been the mark of God's people, how we reflect who God is. He uses another word, doing honest work, he talked about. The idea of that particular work is working to the bone, working till exhaustion, working till you can't do anything anymore. In other words, the group, those of us that are Christians, we're not supposed to be like the world that are lazy. In fact, the Puritan work ethic is not something that we should mock. The Puritan work ethic is a part of who we are. In fact, I would say one of the reasons that the United States has been able to do as well as they have is because from the very beginning, the thing that we mock, the Puritan work ethic, has established within the United States this idea of a God-ordained way in which men are supposed to work and women. He says, I want you to be this group of people that work, but I don't want you to work so that you can have great vacations. I don't want you to work so that you can have a great home. I don't want you to work so you can have nice cars. I don't want you to work so you can have all those things. Those in them themselves are not the evil thing, and so please don't leave thinking this. The greater thing that he's going to portray to this is I want you to work because there's something greater to be able to help those in need. That's the important part of this. I want you to work because there are needs out there is his idea. Now, the, the thing that I appreciate about the way that Paul uses it here, he doesn't use, when he talks about this, he says, uh, um, uh, so that he may have something to share. That idea is, is, is the Greek word that's had is, that, that he puts together with that is, is not to give everything, but the idea is to give a portion. In other words, don't make yourself poor is his idea, but the, the idea greater being that you would now be this group that, that works in such a way that she will actually have money to be able to help those that are in need. Now, here's the key part about that, though. Go back to this. Let the thief no longer steal. Now, how do we steal in our culture? At that time, how they would steal is, is, is that they didn't have a safety net. They didn't have a means to catch them like our culture does. We have little ways in which the, the culture will catch you. And yeah, you might lose your house and different things, but it's really hard to fail inside of the United States. At that time, the great fear was, especially even among Christians, was that, that we're going to fear, we're going to fall through this safety net. And falling through the safety net now, I need to be able to take money from my, my employer, my, my master. Uh, I need to be able to cheat on my taxes. That was a big thing going through the church, especially in the first and second century. By the way, it happens still today. Um, I, I need to be able to somehow provide more for me because what if the safety net doesn't work? 
Now, our problem with stealing is so different. We steal in other more conniving ways. In fact, right now, a statistic that I read is one of the greatest losses of revenue in business today is employees doing what? What? Internet. Think about that. The greatest loss of revenue in the United States today is employees playing games. Now, the thing back on us is Paul's like, we are created different. In fact, in Colossians 3, he said, no, we don't work for the boss. We don't work for the man. We work for the man, God. We're not, just, we're not just going to work to work. We're going to work as a means of gospel demonstration. We're created different. In fact, the hardest workers in the United States and on the planet as a whole should be us. We should be this group of people that every day we go to work, we should be the seven doors. I hope, I hope. It's off to work we go. Why? Because we display gospel there. As we work hard and as we demonstrate who God is by our hard work, we're not just trying to do it for a promotion. We already have a promotion. It's called salvation in Jesus Christ, the greatest promotion. Now we can do our work no longer trying to please our boss. We can do our work differently. We can do our work to now please the one who saved us, to receive the smile of the Lord and offer that now. The more and more we practice that, our mind is transformed. That's, that's the third thing. Here's the fourth thing. Oh, I'm running out of time. He says after that, if we're going to have our mind transformed, oh, you know, one other thought within the church, there's a passage in 2 Thessalonians that says, um, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. We need to practice that. I'm not saying people out of work, okay, that's so key. But I think one of the places that we see it is those between the ages of 18 and 25. You know, it's just this weird thing. Can you imagine if all of you came home and told your 18-year-old, hey, I got great news. If you don't work, you don't eat. No, 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 no. I didn't even mean it, but there was no applause line. I'm just to think about that. We are training our young people. It's okay to sit in your parents' basement and absorb funds from them and do nothing with your life. That is not how God intended us. He intended us to work, not to absorb, but to what? Provide. That is so key. Okay, now that's just a little side note. That was a free one for today. Now let me get back to going. And I just say that because I work with college students and it drives me crazy when they say, yeah, I'm 35 and still living at home. But I'm great at World of Warcraft. Wow. Woo-hoo. Okay. Now I'm about ready to go into corrupting talk, my very next thing, so I need to stop. <clears throat> the next one is, is the thing that we need to become practicing in the thing that, that, that we need to be a part of, this obedience, that we might display God through our speech, but also might be able to, through our obedience, begin to be transformed in the spirit of our mind. He's going to say, let no, uncorru- no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for the building up as, is, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
Now, the idea that he's talking about with this particular one is, is when he talks about corrupting talk, what he, he means is it's just pointless talk. It sometimes was used of like rotting wood or rancid fish or, or even stuff that we just didn't even want anymore. In other words, we as Christians cannot be people that just blah our tongue. See, remember how I said last week, if we need a Lord, our mouth needs a Lord doesn't it? Even in James, it says, James is almost looking at the people going, you can't handle your tongue. (laughs) There's no way that you can. He said, look, there's all these things that you can control, but the human tongue is this thing that just, just all over the place. Our tongue needs a Lord, and the thing that he's calling us to there is is to truly let our mouth have a Lord. In other words, don't just speak whatever you feel like. We live in a culture where it's just like, oh, just let it out. Just talk and say whatever you want. That's not the way the church is. The church is different. We're these groups of people that actually think and process and pray before just things come out of our mouth. We're these groups of people that choose our words wisely. He says to it, why? The purpose being that if we don't choose our words wisely, he's going to get down in there. He says, then all of a sudden, it won't build up as fits the occasion that it may give. And here's the word grace to those who hear. See, the thing about speech is, and this is so important, God created the world by doing what? Speaking. It's one attribute of God. It's one function of God that he handed off to us. You think about it. No other created thing in this world has the capacity that we do. They can kind of communicate, but there's a unique thing about the intelligible speech of a human being. And the reason, in fact, I believe he's going to say this, verse uh, 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption is, is because the Spirit knows that when we were saved, our mouths were created for something so much greater They were created, in fact, he says, to build up. And the the word that he uses is grace, is just to be able to lavish upon people unmerited favor, to just be able to use our mouths in such a way that God is extolled the way he's supposed to be and people are built up the way that they're supposed to be. In other words, the grieving of the Spirit is within the body is what could be used to build the body and make Jesus look so beautiful is instead used to tear it down. And to have, to have this picture, grieve, means to be saddened, to be broken. In other words, the Spirit of God, as he dwells amongst his church, it just creates this sadness amongst them. And we've got to be this group of people that help one another to say words that we've thought through. Now, I'll confess to you, of all the ones that I've looked through that's my greatest weakness, this one right here. And that's sad because I'm preaching It's this idea of truly not just blubbering, not just saying things, but choosing words how God would want you to choose words. Our mouth needs, our our tongue needs a Lord. And then what he does last is this. I don't know, have you ever seen a fireworks show before? They, you know, what happens at the end? Okay, this is what's about to happen. Verse 31, and let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. It's a fireworks show at the end. Almost at the very end, he's saying, look, there's these other things that you need to understand. And the way that he puts these together is so interesting. He connects them in a pretty interesting way. The first one that he uses is bitterness. The idea of bitterness is is it's like cancer. 
Now, can you imagine if, if you've just been told that, that you have cancer and then you come back to the doctor later on and, and he, he says, well, good news, we got most of your cancer. You'd be devastated. You'd be like, dude, go in and get the rest. When he says, let all bitterness be put away from you, the idea is, is get rid of all of it. Bitterness is kind of like the way that I like to look at people. There's anger, and when, the, when anger sets in and we don't de- deal with it, bitterness is kind of like the replay button. You know how like on your TV you hit the replay button, it goes through and plays it again and again and again and again? Bitterness is that. Bitterness is just this thing that goes on in your head where it just plays that thing that ticks you off so much over and over and over and over. And because you've thought about it over and over, when you, even when you've buried the hatchet in a fight, you know how you, in, inside of a fight with somebody you love, you always have the capacity because you've thought through it a lot to go dig that hatchet up? You know exactly where it's at, don't you? Bitterness, you think about this, some of the most dark, awful moments in your life, you can remember like that, can't you? But tell, remember, tell me what happened at Wednesday at 11 o'clock in your life this week. I don't know. But bitterness recalls stuff from 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Satan loves to grab it. He understands bitterness. And he loves to draw it up in our mind to hit that replay button and think, I'm justified, I'm justified. And then bitterness after that leads to this next thing that he puts in there called wrath, meaning it's just this human-based anger that just starts to boil up. More I think about it, man, you know those times when you just thought about something and thought about something, it just begins to just, you're ready to explode. And then finally with anger, this next word that he puts in is a little bit different than the one he's used before. I want justice. The idea of this one is, is the actual, when I sin, I want to die, or when someone sinned against me, I want to deal with this, and I want to deal with it now. Now, the interesting part about this, you ever notice when I sin, what do I want? Compassion. When somebody sins against me, what do I want? Justice. Right? He's going to go on from that clamor. See, after that, now all of a sudden, after the anger, you, the clamor, the idea is it refers to announcing. Now all of a sudden, you want to announce to everyone the injustice that's happened against you. The idea being that the, we need to somehow pull together an audience or a jury. We, we tend to speak to sympathetic ears. We tend to find those that are in the same sin that we're in, and we begin to clamor out to them what's going on. In fact, I would say, going back to this, this idea of put away all from you, I would say the other place that this happens, the most deadly place that this happens today is really not through speech, but through iPhones and computers. Have you ever sat down to type an email angry? How bold are you? You would never say that to somebody's face, would you? But you just sit there texting inside of it, it's, yeah, and you're Facebooking, I'm been wrong. You know, and we just, oh, the way that we do that. And after clamor announcing it to it, the next one is slander. I give everyone the truth that puts that person in the worst light and me in the best light. I start to create teams. And by the time you've gotten here, boy, it's brutally hard to turn around. But the last one, he says, with, along with all malice, malice is like the nuclear bomb. It's like once this hits, It's this word for all badness and wickedness. 
It seems to be a progression. It may not be there, but it seems to be as I've studied through it, there's this progression that happens down through this, the way he's written it. And it's the final state of all of the words. It's the place that the Gentiles go. It's the flow of futility. Everything about that. If the body has to be different than that. And it's this thing that even if it hurts me, I'll take you down. And inside of the church, the place we see this most is inside the area of divorce. Man, we use the kids and we use all kinds of things. And parents will hurt even their own kids to try to get their way. And Paul says, that's not us. We've died to that. Now, the interesting thing he ends with, and I'm going to finish with this. I love this. Paul could have done everything. He could have finished with verse 32, and he says, therefore, try harder. Work harder at it. Be ashamed of yourselves. And I love what he does. Verse 32, you could just say gospel. He just comes back to the gospel. The word that he puts at the very end is God in Christ forgave you. He comes back and just gospel, gospel, gospel. Do you get who you are? You're created different. Therefore, because you're created different, he gospels them again. He says, be kind to one another. And the, the idea behind kindness there is just this, this unmerited uh, uh, benevolence to people. Be tender-hearted. The idea is compassion and empathy. The last one, forgiving one another, it has this idea of truly being about forgiveness. That's an aspect of it. But the idea is just being lavish grace to people. Now, can you imagine if the church, we practice these things over and over and over and over? See, the reason I say you need a body is you can't do this alone. The reason that we're trying to help all of you get into pockets of people, and, and, and at this point, like, I'm, I don't even care if you're in a pocket of people in your proximity. Just go get in pockets of people. No, no, not who. Don't, don't say that. Careful. But don't go put around yourself people that you want to hear what you want to hear. I dare you to go find people that won't tell you what you want to hear. In fact, that's why we try to do this out of this neighborhood concept, to get you outside of your little box, to get you to start living this, because the more you live this, our reason is not to put big, giant fences around everybody and barbed wire and blow whistles if you cross a line. Our goal is that Cornerstone would look more like Jesus. The heart behind all of it that we've tried to do, whether we've done it well or not well, is that we would look like Jesus. We want to walk like Jesus and talk like Jesus. We want to find groups of people to go in and practice this together because we so need to practice it. We need to practice the gospel. We need to practice our death and our burial and our resurrection. We need to practice that over and over so the spirit of our mind can be transformed so that we can be these people that are transformed from one likeness to another to begin to look and to talk and to breathe like Jesus. In fact, the way he puts it in chapter 5, verse 1, is so that we will truly be, therefore, imitators of God. You can't do this alone. You need to be in pockets of people. And so as we leave today, the thing I would encourage you, we've talked about proximity. I would encourage you, go to it. And you'd say, well, it doesn't work for me. Well, let me just tell you something. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. It's about Jesus in this world. And if that doesn't work for you, go get in something. Don't stay out there 
on the vine rotting. Get out in the lives of people so that this thing can happen inside of your life. And I hope you understand my heart. My heart is not to be legalistic or to come down on you and pound on you. My heart is I just want so badly for us to look like Jesus. Amen? Okay, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for today. God, I pray that what's come out of my mouth today has honored you. Father, I pray that what comes out of this is groups of people that start to be around God's people and in being around God's people, Father, would you begin to shape and to mold this and with this group of people, even just in this room, I'm not even talking about the other two services, God, would we be people that live for you and know you and walk with you? God, make us different. Put us into situations that aren't comfortable. Not so that we can just be uncomfortable, Father, but I so desperately want us to look like your son. But God, I'm so glad you want it more than us. God, do what we can in your precious name. Amen. A couple things before we finish. Number one is, if you haven't been baptized yet, we'd like to encourage you to be baptized. It's that act of obedience. And again, we talk about it's obedience that transforms us. This act of obedience to come up and be baptized in the waters is to tell everyone, I want to follow Jesus. I want to join him in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. We're going to take an offering, and, and here's why. A lot of people just kept clamoring and saying to us, look, I don't mean to, but I forget to put money in the boxes. And so it's just, this is out of a response. I mean, part of it is, is that, I mean, we never want to hide anything, um, we're like every other church. We're struggling financially, and we are going to have to make some tough decisions as a church as far as how do we, you know, we, we got to be able to make ends meet, and so we still have a, a, a large reserve, but the thing is that's not going to last forever, and so we do have to be able to bring it down into the type of giving that this church has. And so one of the several people have just said, look, I don't mean to, but I forget to give, and it's, it's, I just forget the boxes. And so out of a response to that, we're going to bring back an opportunity to worship through just the, the offering plates being passed. And so again, it's, it's just a form of worship that we tried to do it one way. And some of you have just said, man, we don't do it well that way. So we're going to do it this way to worship God in, in that kind of way. But if you could just be praying for uh, the elders and for the pastors. We're, we're always trying to, to, to make the most of the money that God gives us. And we are going to have to make some tough decisions coming up. And uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to try very hard to put ourselves in front of a holy God and just ask him, Father, how would you like us to be able to, uh, to live on less so that we might be able to promote you the most? And um, we, we've kind of found out where it looks like Cornerstone's going to be able to give during this difficult financial time. And that's fine. Um, we, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I'm always excited about that. He gives us exactly what we need. And so therefore, we need to respond to that need. And so I just wanted to share that kind of off the tail end. But the offering plates will be coming around. Um, but don't miss this. I'm not saying this to guilt you. And if you're a guest here today, I'm not asking you to put money in that plate. This is a form of worship. It's to be done with joy. It's something we practice together for the transformation of our mind. Amen? Okay, love you guys.